Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. A decade ago, journalist Mark Fullman and a team at Mother Jones began creating a database that somehow didn't exist. A database of all the mass shootings that had occurred in the United States. With horrifying regularity, he added new entries as shooters killed scores of people again and again and again. With gun control laws stuck in legislative mud, he began to get interested in a very different approach to stopping mass shootings one focused on identifying individual people and stopping their journey on the pathway to violence. He describes these techniques in a new book, Trigger Points, and he joins us to talk about changing our approach to mass shootings. That's after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Despite the many, many mass shootings in America, they are still extremely rare events. And so the task that journalist Mark Fullman describes in his new book, Trigger Points, is truly difficult. How can special teams distinguish the people who might actually commit horrifying mass violence from all the legions of angry people who say terrible things and display disturbing behavior? The field that tries to do this is called behavioral threat assessment. And Fullman, after all his years covering mass shootings, became deeply interested in its potential to cut down on the number of people who kill Mark, joining us in the studio today. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. So let's start with the basics. Can you just tell us what behavioral threat assessment actually is sort of in practice? Yeah, so it's a community-based violence prevention method that brings together a group of experts. Uh, the primary expertise is mental health and law enforcement. And then depending on what where the, the setting is where it's being done, a school system or a workplace, you have other people involved as well. So in a school, you would have school psychologists, counselors, administrators. In a corporate or business setting, you would have HR personnel. And the method essentially looks at situations that are concerning, people who are behaving in ways that are um, unsettling to others around them, causing fear or anxiety. And the, the, a threat assessment team in that situation will take a look at that individual's case and try to understand what's going on with the person, evaluate whether there's a level of danger, and then create a plan to manage the situation and try to help that person onto a better course. So this feels kind of like a pragmatic turn for you. Like the after all these years of covering mass shootings, You've seen the guns debate go back and forth, but also sort of be just stuck in kind of legislative nowheresville. And this was sort of a, a place where you actually saw some hope of actually having some, some mass shootings get stopped. 
That's right. You know, as in the early years of investigating mass shootings, people began asking me, when are you going to write a book about this? And, and I always just felt like, I'm not going to do that. It's We've got a hundred books that go into this gun debate and it's so grim. Um, but once I found out about this, this subject, uh, I became very excited because it is hopeful. It's a constructive, solution-oriented approach and, and I think to a large extent a nonpartisan way to look at the problem. And for me, it was really kind of evolving out of that frustration that I think so many of us feel about gun politics. Uh, we regard these attacks as um, indefinite and unsolvable and you know there's nothing we can really do about it and we just argue politically with each other all the time um, and we regard them as totally senseless, right? We, we literally call them senseless tragedies. And for me, this the writing this book, Trigger Points, was about making sense of these tragedies because if we can understand them better, um, which essentially means understanding what leads to them, that's the work of behavioral threat assessment, then we can begin to reduce the problem. That's not to say you don't think there should be fewer guns in America or that guns should be regulated differently, though. Not at all. Uh, I see this as an additive solution, a, a potentially very powerful one. Um, the debate over gun regulations is very important. It's gone on for a long time. It's a difficult fight. Um, I personally share the views of a majority of Americans, as I say at the outset of the book, that we need more effective gun laws. That's essential. Um, but that fight cannot be the only thing we do, I've come to believe, to deal with this problem. It's a complex problem, and it requires a complex solution that's bigger in scope. You know, when you talk about making sense of these shootings, some of that has to do with, right, with we need to understand mass shooters better. And you came to believe through your work with working with experts in this field that that's actually possible, right? That there these aren't people who are fundamentally beyond the pale of understanding. Absolutely. Uh, we regurgitate the same myths about mass shooters over and over again in the media and in the general public on social media. Whenever one of these traumatic events happens, um, one of those big myths is that this is all about mental illness, that mental illness is the cause. Well, if you look at the case research, which is extensive, um, I've done my own, also the, the case literature in the field of threat assessment. Uh, in most cases, mental illness is not a primary cause of, of what's motivating shooters to act this way. Um, now, these are people who are not mentally healthy, of course. No one commits a mass shooting who is mentally healthy. These are people with lots of deep problems. But we're talking about rage, anger, grievance, a sense of injustice, um, and people who develop an idea that committing violence is a way to remedy their problems. Um, there's some really interesting, I think, cultural questions around that, why that has become such a valid idea for certain people in our society. Um, another big myth that I'll mention is we hear after every single one of these cases, the question, what made the guy snap? As if the person just lost it and impulsively went and committed a mass shooting. And that's just fundamentally untrue. In all of these cases, these are planned attacks. These are people thinking about a violent idea, planning for it, preparing for it uh, for days, weeks, sometimes even months, and then deciding when to go out and commit the attack. And that is the opportunity of threat assessment work, that window of time before the attack when there are behavioral warning signs to intervene. But what the field isn't trying to do, right, it's not actually trying to, like, predict these things, right? So what, but, so what is it trying to do if it's not trying to predict? What's it trying to do? 
Right. It's a great question. So it, it is all about prevention work. It's prevention, not prediction. There is no way to predict who will become a mass shooter. I write about this at length in the book. Um, you can't profile someone based on their characteristics, um, personality or preferences or what they look like. It just doesn't work. The, the, you know, if we talk about people who are angry or who are interested in guns or who are white males, and you can check all those boxes in a lot of mass shootings, but it's not helpful as a criteria because you have so many more people like that who would never commit a mass shooting. So therefore, what the field does, what this method does is look at the behaviors and circumstances preceding a mass shooting, identify patterns within that, and you know, work with that, evaluate each case based on that and try to intervene constructively. And because it's preventative, it's also constructive. It's not meant to be punitive. You can't just, you know, kick someone out of school, fire them, lock them up. uh, Because again, the case research shows that's often ineffective. These people will come back or go elsewhere and commit violence. Where did this field come from? Like, what are its roots in? So I loved digging into the history for the book. It's really interesting. Um, the field originates in kind of several different areas independently and sort of organically um, beginning in the 1980s. The primary, the primary source of it um, was collaboration that began between mental health experts in forensic psychology and agents at the U.S. Secret Service. Uh, this is in beginning in the early 1980s. There was a strong interest um, at the Secret Service to try to figure out how the agency could do a better job of preventing assassination. And getting together with some um, forensic psychologists, in particular some folks at a state mental health institution in Massachusetts, uh, Bridgewater State Hospital is called, Uh, they started evaluating offenders and interviewing assassins who had either plotted to attack the president or other high-profile public figures and uh, or had done so and were imprisoned and going and interviewing them and trying to understand better what their mindset was as well as the behaviors that led up to what they did. And the field began to develop out of that work. Wow. You also trace one of the other roots of the field to the LAPD in the 1990s, right? As it tries to understand sort of celebrity stalking cases too, right? That's right. That was another facet of this, similar in some ways. And and in fact, the team I was just talking about at Bridgewater and with the Secret Service, one of the first cases that they looked at right at the outset of this was the murder of John Lennon in New York. Um, And then the shooting of Ronald Reagan that happened right after that, those perpetrators were early case subjects. And so you have both celebrity culture and political culture as the focus. And then out in Los Angeles, um, the LAPD was dealing with some uh, sort of heightened issues of celebrity stalking in the 1980s. That was sort of when tabloid culture went big with, you know, celebrity uh, culture in general, but with harassment as well. And then there was a very high profile murder of a, of a young actor named Rebecca Schaefer, who was a young rising star in television. And she was stalked by um, a really disturbed guy from Arizona who eventually went out to Hollywood and shot her at on her doorstep. And this, you know, threw the entertainment industry up in arms and people started asking the question more like, why did we have to wait for this to happen? Like, why couldn't we do something proactively? And at the time, that just wasn't even on part of the paradigm for law enforcement. But the LAPD started developing a threat management unit. It was the first of its kind at a local police agency in the country to try to figure out how to head off stalkers before they committed lethal violence. And when did the turn in the field to examining mass shootings come about? So that began 
in the 80s as this work was beginning to develop with the era of what we you may remember was called going postal right there was a bunch of post office mass shootings and people in these various settings LAPD secret service and at the FBI that was also developing threat assessment work uh, began to look into workplace violence and trying to think about how to head off those kinds of attackers. And that was really the focus through the 1980s into the 1990s. The Secret Service was then developing a much deeper study of assassins, um, some work that they called the Exceptional Case Study Project that developed throughout the 90s. And then came a kind of tectonic moment in 1999 with the Columbine mass shooting. Um, And there had actually been some really bad school shootings in the late 90s prior to Columbine. But when Columbine happened, people in the field said, okay, we have to look at this now in a school setting, which was still very little understood even then, even though the field had been developing for a decade and a half. And so the folks at the Secret Service who'd been developing this work now for a decade approached the Department of Education and said, hey, we can help you. We can use our study of assassins as a basis to understand school shooters. And sure enough, the research that they began doing very quickly showed a lot of the same behavioral patterns. And they developed a model to apply this to school systems. Yeah, I mean, Columbine, for someone my age, was just, as you described, a tectonic moment. It feels like when everything changed around how people thought about mass shootings. And in your book, you also amazingly described that there have been more than 100 plots based around, you know, in some ways, emulating or, or copying uh, the, the Columbine shooters. And we'll talk about that more when we get back from the break. We're talking with journalist Mark Fullman about his new book, Trigger Points, takes a deep dive into a field called behavioral threat assessment. And we'd love to hear from you as well. In the absence of legislative efforts to address gun control, how can we prevent mass shootings? What are your questions or your concerns about the strategies that Fullman has identified, has been describing for us here this morning? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Of course, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with journalist Mark Fullman about his new book, Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. We'd love to hear from you. What are your questions or concerns about the strategies that you're hearing Mark Fullman describe here on the air in this field of behavioral threat assessment? You can give us a call 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786, Twitter, Facebook, 
Instagram or KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at kqed.org. For the break, we were talking about Columbine being a moment kind of when when everything changed. And I wanted you to maybe talk a little bit about what that copycat effect really is and maybe also what the role of the media has been in probably doing some damage in the world. Sure. Well, what we know as the so-called copycat effect is rooted most in what happened at Columbine. But I think a big part of that story, too, is how our media environment has developed since then with the advent of digital media, with social media, in the way that we share information about mass shootings and other events, and then also how the media itself, the news media covers these events. Um, The gist of it is that you have quite a few perpetrators of these attacks who are looking to their predecessors for inspiration or even tactical ideas. Uh, This was a phenomenon I started learning about as I was digging into behavioral threat assessment. Uh, There were some folks at the FBI who had noticed a really kind of troubling trend with this in the 2010s, that it was it was not only existent, but accelerating Um, and particularly particularly in the setting of school shootings, that young males in schools were um, identifying with the Columbine shooters. And there are some other major attackers as well. Uh, But Columbine is really the 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 original version of this and the most um, prolific, if you will. And so uh, the way that that has become, I think, a bigger problem is because we also continue to reinforce it with the way that we talk about school shootings. You'll see public officials um, refer to school shooting plots as Columbine-style attacks. You'll see them described that way in the news media. Um, When there are major school shootings, you will see... um, you know, sort of recycling of images from Columbine, references back to Columbine. Now, this has changed some in recent years. And I started writing about this in, I think, 2015 for Mother Jones. Uh, this has some bad effects because it's it's reinforcing the copycat effect, the inspiration that people out in the world may take from this kind of coverage. And because the field of threat assessment has documented through research as well that there are many cases where perpetrators show explicitly in the things that they say or do or write that they are interested in media attention. And so they see this as a way to get it as well. Right. Like everyone will know my name after this thing has has occurred. That's right. There have been some shooters who've literally said that in the run up to their attacks. Let's bring in our first caller, Monica from San Francisco. Welcome to the show. Hi. Can you hear me? Yes, sure can. Go ahead. Um. My question was, um, what, if anything, do we know about, like, remorse or how the shooters who survive feel after the fact? And do they identify any entry points for prevention? Are they um, looking for help before it happens? Like, I was kind of liking it in, liking in, likening it in my mind to, like, a suicide prevention line. Would there be a place where people could call and say, I'm thinking of this, and how do you... How do I get help? Yeah, those are those are really great questions, Monica. Maybe we should have um, Mark discuss sort of what happens when a program like this works. Like, just kind of walk us through what are the intervention points uh, for behavioral threat assessment when it's doing what it's supposed to do. 
For sure. And and the answer to that question is yes. It's it's a very hopeful finding in the field when the Secret Service and Department of Education began studying school shooters specifically after Columbine. They went and also interviewed perpetrators who were in, incarcerated and found a number of cases with remorse. And what was significant about this was that it was an indication that intervention could be successful, that these were people who were open to help, that that wanted help, that needed help, right? And that's really the heart of this work is really about early intervention, especially in the setting of youth, especially in a school. So um, one of the main uh, components of the book is I, I was able to go and immerse with a program in Oregon that was one of the pioneers of this in a K-12 school system in Salem-Kaiser School District in Salem, Oregon. Uh, they built a program there for threat assessment. It's a large public school district, about 42,000 kids, 65 school buildings. Uh, they built their program right after Columbine. They, in fact, started it before Columbine because there was another bad mass shooting in Oregon in 1998, uh, sort of eclipsed historically by Columbine. But locally, they were very focused on this problem. And so after Columbine, built a program. Um, and in the book, I tell the story of some cases that I was able to follow over the better part of a year in 2019. Uh, one story is about a, a high school junior who I call Brandon, not his real name, um, who had started talking about shooting up the school and was overheard by other students who became concerned and reported it to faculty. Um, Brandon had said, I'm going to get my dad's gun and come to school on Friday and shoot up the place. Very specific threat, which is meaningful to a threat assessment team. That's different than sort of talking generally about school shootings. Um, he was a, a kid who had, this was not the first time he'd made comments about school shootings. He had kind of a history of doing it. Um, and there were some other things going on too. So the, the team moved quickly to evaluate, is he an imminent threat? Does he have access to weapons? It's a critical first question in a situation like that. Um, they had an SRO, a school resource officer on the team, out to his house that evening to interview him and his mother was able to determine that he did not have access to weapons, even though he claimed that he could get his dad's gun. So that was good in terms of the immediate danger. Then the team moved to gather a lot more information about his situation. Um, what's going on with him socially, in terms of mental health, in terms of school. He had stopped going to some classes. He'd quit a drama club that he was into. These are bad signs. These are signs of a person kind of deteriorating or spiraling into a worse situation. So the school threat assessment team then quickly developed a plan to help him. Um, the good news about doing this in a school setting is it's very structured. So they have a lot of tools they can work with to try to help a kid in crisis. And, and this was a kid in crisis. They determined through the, those and other factors that he was probably suicidal. And as, you, as the caller asks, suicide is a very important factor in a lot of these cases. Many of these cases are murder-suicide. And uh, that was actually one of the first findings I came to with my data work on mass shootings starting 10 years ago for Mother Jones, that more than half of these ca cases end in suicide, shooter suicide. So when a team sees that, again, alarm bells going off. And what they did to help Brandon was what they called their wraparound strategy, extending him lots of close personal help, counseling, educational support. Uh, working with the the parents at home, which isn't always possible. Some parents are not cooperative. Some parents are hostile even. I mean, we just saw that with what happened in Michigan last fall, kind of an extraordinary case of, of parental <laughs> um, uh, 
neglect or, or, you know, we don't know the full story there, but that's not a case where you'd have help from the parents. But in this case, fortunately, there was. And so taking together all of these tactics, keeping a close eye on Brandon, helping him move forward, diverting him onto a better path, the team was able to move him away from thinking about violence. And um, in that sense, was quite successful. He went on through his senior year, was doing better and graduated high school. Man, so many questions come out of that that story, I think. I mean, one is, it's really hard to know if this is working, right? Because if in the best case scenario, nothing happens. Uh, another one is, where do all the resources come from to do this in all these different schools, given how strapped schools are for, for money? And the third is, can this work in a broader set of settings, you know, like working working people, you know, um, where you don't have that structured setting, you're not going to have all these the counselors and the ability to kind of control uh, the, the kids day. How, how do you how do you think about any any of those? I, I know I've done three questions at you, but it's, yeah. there's just so many things that, that there's so many questions that, that rise from the actual practice of this field. That's right. Yeah, it is a complex model. But uh there are some good answers to those questions. Uh, the, the first one, how do you know when a case is really over? Very difficult to answer. I mean, success with behavioral threat assessment is the absence of evidence, right? It's it's not having a violent outcome. So how do you know that that's going to go on indefinitely? That's not news, so we never hear about it, right? Um but, you know, so one of the analogies there that I write about in the book from a leader in this field is, is um, comparing it to cardiology. Uh, you know, cardiologists treat uh, patients for heart issues, and they never know if they prevented a heart attack, but they know that they can do a lot through their treatment to mitigate the problem, to reduce the probability. Um, that's one way to think about how this works. Um, ironically, Salem-Kaiser has a really unique case in its history, and I don't have, we probably don't have time to get into it deeply, but they had a case early on with this program where they helped a kid in, in very deep crisis um, in the early 2000s successfully, similar to the story with Brandon. He went on to graduate, was doing fine, uh, moved away from the community a few years later, went to Portland, Oregon, and ended up committing a mass shooting. I mean, it's a mind-boggling situation. Not only did he commit a mass shooting, but he targeted a similar demographic, the kinds of kids that he believed had wronged him in high school that he was deeply angry about. And so that case is unique in in the annals of the field, but it, it shows something remarkable, I think, that I say in the book is, you know, we see the great promise of this work in that perhaps more than anything else, this showed that the team back in Salem had prevented him from committing a rampage. And yet it didn't work, obviously, in the long run because he went on somewhere else. So it goes to the other question, another question that you asked about how do you extend this more broadly into other communities or, or perhaps more nationally um, <clears throat> to help someone who may leave the fold of a school where you have perhaps the best resources to, to use this model. Um, so let's talk about resources very quickly too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you build this? Um, Leaders in the field have said to me, and I, I've asked this question many times over the years as I was working on the book, you know, th this seems like it takes a lot of resources. How do you scale this? We, if you really want to scale this to be uh, order of magnitude more effective, including to catch the guy who then goes off to Portland later um, and help him still if he needs help. Um, one answer that I've heard that I think is persuasive is that in 
a school system or in a workplace, you have the infrastructure in place already. You have the personnel who are going to do this work. In a school, you're talking about administrators, school counselors, psychologists, all the people whose part of their role is to keep the school safe and help kids who need help um, through education, but also beyond that, right? Um, or in a workplace setting, you have an HR director, you have personnel people who manage the workplace. These are the people who are going to be trained to do this work, to, to use this model. So the investment, I think, is really in the training. It's just interesting because, you know, my best friend's a social worker, and so much of this sounds like social work, which is chronically underfunded yep. and, you know, chronic, and chronically undervalued, too, yes. in, the, in its... Um, in its many forms. Let's bring in um, Celeste from San Francisco. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Um, I'm a volunteer with Moms Land Action for Gun Sense here in San Francisco, and we talk a lot about red flag laws. And I'm curious sort of what you learned about red flag laws and how, um, if we need to like inform people more about them, especially like police departments, you know, social workers, people who might be able to, to use them. Yeah. Mark Fullman? Yeah, great question. Um, and I do write about this in, in Trigger Points, that red flag laws have been growing. It's a relatively new tool. Can you tell us about what they are? Just Sure. Um, it is essentially a, um, a process by which people who are uh, around a person of concern, primarily family, it, it depends what state you're in because the legislation varies a little bit. Um, but in most cases, you're talking about a family member can petition a court to remove firearms from someone who who appears to pose danger to themselves or others, uh, whether it's for suicide or possibly thinking about committing a violent attack. Um, there are some versions of this now that it begin to expand it. I, I believe, including here in California, that where you can have um, also law enforcement petition the court, um, it's up to a judge then to decide, are we going to temporarily remove firearms from this person for up to a year? Um, it's a civil process, not a criminal one. So it is a very, I think, um, Im potentially important tool that intersects with community-based violence prevention and with behavioral threat assessment. If there is a person of concern um, who is thought to be quite dangerous, uh, thinking about planning, showing evidence of planning an attack, then removing a firearm in that situation with this tool could become very important, I think. You know, I mean, one of the challenging, most challenging aspects that you describe in this book about how this process is supposed to work is that it actually, it's not punitive, as you noticed, as you noted earlier. And so it actually requires maybe softer gloves than people want, like not getting restraining orders, not kicking people out of school, not firing them when these things right. are occurring. How does that track with things like a red flag law that, that are more punitive and that, that do sort of put people on notice that they're being, you know, watched? Yeah. It's, well, it's important to be clear about this. The ideal of this work is constructive, not punitive. But that's not to say that nothing punitive ever happens. There are cases where punitive steps must be taken and are taken. Um, that's just the reality of it. Not everybody's going to be responsive to constructive help. Or you may have a situation that is dangerous enough that that's not an option. You have to arrest and prosecute someone based on criminal behavior. But because this is a prevention model, you're often talking about cases where there is no criminal behavior. Um, you may have people who aren't even breaking policies in a workplace, or they're just acting in ways that worry people. Um, and so the reason that that the field has come to, I think, 
emphasize and 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 believe in the importance of sort of a softer approach as you describe it um, and there are cases like that that I describe in the book that are very successful um, is because not only is that more effective in many cases but also again you go back to the cases where some of those more harsh measures don't work you know someone gets a restraining order put on them and not only does that not stop them but that's actually what's called a triggering event in the field that sets off their idea for violence now they're even more angry or more nihilistic in their thinking and then they go out and attack the person who has put their order on them or the people around them so those measures in and of themselves are not effective in many cases and the field has come to learn that yeah. uh listener dan writes uh you know quoting quoting you it's a complex problem is it if you compare the rate of gun ownership with the rate of gun deaths, they track all the more so when the U.S. is compared to other advanced economies? Americans die from gunfire, gunfire in proportion to our gun ownership. More guns means more lethal accidents, more suicides, more everyday arguments escalated into murderous attacks. Sure, there are other factors, but really, let's not lose sight that our country is awash in firearms to the tune of more guns than people. We are in a class all alone. Mark Fulman, do you disagree with any of that? Not at all. And... You know, Alexis, for me, uh, we were talking about this before we started the show, and at the outset, too, I I really began to think about this problem and wanted to begin to think about this problem in some different ways, because that's all true. And yet, part of what really grabbed me about this method and this work as a subject is that it it's contending with the reality of gun violence as it is. I mean, yes, we have a country awash in firearms of nearly 400 million of them. And they're loosely regulated in many places throughout the country. And unless and until that changes, that's what we have to deal with. So, um, you know, we have a very kind of uh, patchwork legal system for guns, if you think about it at the state level. And, you know, we look at what just happened in Sacramento. I mean, California has some of the tightest gun laws in the nation, but that's you can drive an hour over to, to Nevada and do whatever you want to get a gun. So the reality of the situation is we need other tools. And yes, obviously, mass shootings are inextricably a gun problem. You don't have mass shootings without guns. But we are a country that has and is going to have guns. Yeah, yeah. We're talking with journalist Mark Fallman about his new book, Trigger, Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. The book takes a really deep dive into a field called behavioral threat assessment. We'd love to hear from you what are your questions or concerns about the strategies that you're hearing outlined today by Mark Fullman? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum, or the emails, forum at kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with journalist Mark Fulman about his new book, Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. We want to bring in uh, some more of your calls. Uh, Eric from San Francisco, welcome to the show. Hey there, how are we doing? Good, good. Um, I kind of had a different take on the topic I've thought about before, because, you, you know, you always talk about preventing people who have made uh, made it loud and clear that they want to, mm-hmm. you know, do a Commit violence or, right. Um, yeah. And, w- okay, what is to say, what 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 if someone kind of does it, plots in silence, doesn't say anything to anyone, mm-hmm. just says, oh, I'm going to go do this and, you know, doesn't actually tell anyone they're going to do it. Um, mm-hmm. what, what do you, what's your take on that? Yeah, that's a good question, Eric. Uh, Mark Fulman? Yeah, it is a good question. There's a range of behavioral warning signs, and that's where the the threat assessment expertise is, I think, particularly valuable. But also the public becoming more aware of and educated about what these signs are, because what we see from studying all these cases is that in most cases, there are quite a few warning signs. And it's not necessarily a person saying that they're going to go do this. There are other ways of, of showing it. Um, expressing it. Uh, You can look at the Oxford High School case from last November. That was a kid who was uh, making drawings of violence and putting, you know, phrases like the thoughts won't stop, help me, blood everywhere. He's not saying I'm going to shoot up the school. But those were very stark warning signs in, in, at the, the end of his path to committing the attack. Um, and there were some more explicit ones prior to that. So in most cases, there are signals. Yeah. Let's bring in another caller, Danielle from Redwood City. Welcome. Hi, Alexis. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I am uh, it's sort of similar question riffing off of the last caller. I'm a psychologist. I primarily work with teens and young adults. And of course, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are familiar that we're in the middle of a mental health teen crisis. Um, but I've noticed recently, um, or I should say over the last year or so, that there's been an increase in the types of kids that I'm seeing that are expressing sort of similar rage, even kind of outlining some, some plotting. And all of these young people are at home. They're not back in school. They have opted often for um, online studying. And this has put What I would say this model, which I think is excellent at a real disadvantage, though, because there's so many points of contact with teachers and professionals that are being missed. Mm. Um, And certainly for parents who are kind of not as aware or they've let their kids to their devices, um, that's problematic, as well as the young adults that maybe, you know, that I'm seeing that are working from home that don't have their colleagues and people. So. I guess I'm just wondering a little bit more if you can, um, if if your guest can speak to the way the pandemic and isolation has maybe challenged the model or, or maybe not. I don't know. Wow. Danielle, great question. Super perceptive. Thank you so much for that perspective. 
Mark? Yeah, really good question. <clears throat> and I, I've talked with threat assessment leaders about this in, in recent months. Uh, the pandemic, no doubt, has has exacerbated these problems and added some new challenges in terms of how to address potential threats. Uh, the stress levels have risen, caseloads are up. You know, I'm hearing things like that. But it does point back to a fundamental challenge that the field has always faced, which we were alluding to a little bit earlier, which is how do you handle this more broadly? How do you get out into a community or even beyond into other communities throughout the country? And one of the things I write about in the book is is also based in Salem, Oregon. Another innovation there that they did with this model that's quite fascinating is that they have also what they call an adult threat advisory team in the community that is based at a local law enforcement agency. And they work together with the school system team. There's some overlap of membership historically so that they can hand off cases uh, when someone leaves the school. And I write about some cases like that in Trigger Points as well, where you've got a kid graduate, but they're still concerning. What do you do? Well, you let the local adult threat assessment team take over and handle it. Um, and so that becomes a broader model within the community. And that may speak to how to handle a situation like the pandemic, where you have less structure, especially for young people, where we are seeing an escalating mental health crisis. And that's concerning because, as I was saying earlier, you know, issues of depression and anxiety and suicide are very important in the kind of matrix of, of warning behaviors and warning signs in these cases. You know, the other thing that Dan Daniel's question raises for me is that an increasing amount of, you know, teen life, just to go with school shootings, is occurring in the online world, mm -hmm. which raises the prospect either of more intensely surveilling what kids are doing in those spaces or letting those things go sort of un, uh, unchecked, un, unmediated by, by parents. How do you think about the kind of surveillance that would be necessary to gather the kind of information for threat assessment that it seems like these teams would want. Yeah, so the idea of surveillance is an important issue to address with this method. It's one of the sort of first questions of pushback that will come up with it. You know, isn't this like big brother? Isn't this going to, um, you know, put civil liberties at risk? The good news is, is that the way this is done is really sort of the opposite of that. Um, you can't you can't do behavioral threat assessment using dragnet surveillance of social media activity. It's just a fire hose of information, and it's sort of like what we were talking about earlier with profiling. You can't use that information to be predictive in any way. So uh, there has been kind of an advent of of social media surveillance services out in the world that are offered to schools and and others as a way to try to deal with this problem. But when I was looking closely at the work of leading threat assessment teams in schools in Salem, Kaiser, and elsewhere. I got inside several other programs in the country. Um, th there was one program where the leaders actually showed me this prospect very um, specifically. I'm not gonna name the program, I don't say so in the book, but um, they have the ability in a school system to surveil any computer activity within the school. And um, when presented with the opportunity to do that, the team said, no, we don't want to do, who's going to sit there all day and look at, at what every kid's doing online, posting, what are, their, what are they searching for? It's, it's not an effective approach. It does get you more into risk with civil, liber civil liberties in that territory. 
It's really the opposite. In other words, when a, when a person of concern comes to the attention of a team, that's when they're going to go look at whatever they can going on with that person, including online digital activity, using lawful tools. So if it's in the context of a school, they have the capability and, and the right to look at what that kid's doing on a school computer. Um, anything that is open source is, is legitimate to look at. Um, so the approach is really case specific. It's not wide surveillance. You know, the other kind of obvious pushback, I think, is that this method requires having pretty tremendous trust in law enforcement at a time when it not everyone has trust in law enforcement. How, how have you tried to make sense of that in this moment? It's a really good question. Um, I think that the way that the field answers that is through its collaborative work. It's yes, law enforcement is important, but you're also talking about that the leadership of this work is often mental health professionals, it's educators, um, it's community leaders in other settings and religious institutions, uh, local agencies. And so the work doesn't fall on any one entity. And furthermore, law enforcement's involvement in this model is very different than what we understand to be the traditional work of law enforcement, which is prosecuting crime, investigating and helping prosecute crime, right? So to, um, to meet people in law enforcement who are doing this work and who are dedicated to it or very passionate about it was quite extraordinary for me in, in doing the book because they're doing prevention work just like the mental health people are. And so, yes, they do have this added challenge. Uh, we're in an era where trust in law enforcement has been called into question in some big and important ways. And I think it's incumbent on the people in this field to demonstrate to the community what is the work that they're doing to be as transparent as possible about it? That's tricky because you're talking about sensitive cases where you don't want to stigmatize people as dangerous or so on and so forth. So there's a balancing act there. Um, but I can say that the people in law enforcement who I've gotten to know who do this work are really quite compelling in the way that the others involved in the collaboration are too. They're focused on prevention. They're, they're focused on constructive solutions. They, like any others, don't want to see people go out and commit a mass shooting. And so, um, but yes, there, there is a sort of a burden of proof here that is, is high. Yeah. Let's bring in uh, Nancy from Berkeley. Welcome to the show, Nancy. Hi, uh, thanks for taking my call and thanks for this conversation. Um, I just wanted to say that I was, I haven't heard the whole thing, so maybe I missed something, but I was kind of shocked that I haven't heard the words gender come up at all. As far as I know, women do not commit mass shootings. And obviously, as a feminist, I could say, well, just lock up all the young men. But actually, I think there's this crisis in male adolescence that is part of this problem. So I was just hoping you could, mm-hmm. you know, address that. Thank you very much. No, Nancy, it's a great point, And thank you so much for, for bringing that perspective. Um, Mark, let's let's talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I think the underlying point is is important. And yet, as we were talking about earlier, there there's no way to predict or profile who becomes a mass shooter. So the notion that, that the vast majority of them are male isn't really helpful. Um, that's, but that is true, though, right? Yes, I mean, it is true. Although there are, there are some women who've committed these attacks historically. Not many. It's very few. Um, and, and there are also some who've plotted it and been thwarted. And th- there's been more of that in recent years at the youth level. Um, some cases that are known about and others that are not that I learned about in the course of writing the book. Um, so, yes, it is overwhelmingly a male problem. 
Um, but I think it really just points to the broader questions we face about what are the cultural forces w- at work here um, that go well beyond gender, because gender doesn't really tell you anything. Roughly half the population is male, so that doesn't help us identify the very few people who will actually try to commit this crime. Yeah, you do wonder, though, I mean, to, to Nancy's point, though, that it does seem like there's something going on, some distribution of outcomes going on for, for young men in which there are a decent chunk of them are getting like really, really extreme ideas, whether it's mass shootings or, or other things. Are, are the threat assessment folks looking at that and saying like something qualitatively has changed in the experience of young men, particularly in school settings and immediately thereafter? Yeah, those questions have been asked as far back as Columbine. And there was a forensic psychologist involved in the the big study after Columbine that we talked about earlier. It was called the Safe School Initiative, who went on to do uh, deeper work on what is it about the psychology and mental health of boys that we're getting wrong in our society that's causing this kind of fixation on graphic violence. Um, I think those are important questions. They, they aren't necessarily practically applicable to this model. And yet, I, I think, you know, we should be asking them. And I think people in the fields of mental health and, and education are asking them. Um, so, you know, more recently, I've done some reporting on what's become known as toxic masculinity. Uh, I think that's an important area because it is part of the warning factor um, set of issues that come up in mass shootings, as I've reported from Mother Jones in the last few years. Um, and these things are kind of converging and recombining in some really interesting ways that are informative to prevention work. Toxic masculinity, political extremism has been on the rise for years now in our country. That's feeding into this. Um, and then the role of, of graphic violence and graphic entertainment, how that's consumed in the digital age, I think has been accelerated in some ways that certainly has an effect on young boys who are still developing uh, psychologically and, and um, you know, as, as people. Yeah. Listener Olivia writes, I would like to ask whether your guest thinks that changing our education system will help change the desire to have guns later on in life, whether as teenagers or as adults. Will adding core values and rules of civility in primary school help change the desire to bully or hurt others, the desire for revenge, their jealousy and rage, etc.? Uh, those are all great yeah. ideas. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> we should be doing more of that um, in many ways yeah. in our country right now. Yeah. Let's bring in uh, Henry from Santa Rosa. Welcome. Well, hi. Um, I wanted to make a, a comparison to people jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. It, it, it stopped. They, uh, the, the media stopped covering mm-hmm. suicides at the bridge about five years ago. And I don't know if it's reduced the the problem or if it's increased the problem, but I think the media has some blame because they run with shootings, mass shootings, mm-hmm. hourly. You know, and so I wanted to ask you if you think that um, you know copycat type of shootings are a problem, copycat suicides are a problem, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great, I mean, it's a great point, Henry. And I think, you know, part of it is, you know, as journalists, you know, Mark and I, both journalists, it plays on our tendencies, of course, to want to put out the most information possible, right? And Mark, at least as I understand your position, it's that there has to be sort of a balance between, bring. you know, you you do name 
mass shooters in this book, which some people have, have stopped doing. And you do, you know, bring in information about their lives. So how, how are you thinking about how you balance, you know, the public's right to know or, or need to know with, you know, the baser instincts of the media world? Yeah. I, I arrived at an idea about how to handle this that I call strategic diminishment. Um, there is There has been a movement to completely try to black out the identities of mass shooters uh, and and you know really downplayed in the media and and the the thinking behind that is is um, you know is important in the sense that we do know that there is a deleterious effect on perpetrators getting media attention as we talked about earlier um, and the way that the media sensationalizes the problem historically is not good I've written about that quite a bit and yet there's a very strong public interest in these events. They're important because of the impact that they have. And of course, we have to report on them. Because again, if the mission here is to understand the problem better, then we need to report on them and write about them. And so then it becomes a question of how do you do that in a way that doesn't give excessive attention to a perpetrator, many of whom want that, um, that focuses forensically on what's happened in a case. And I think also, reports on the people who are impacted, the victims, I think that's in the survivors. I think that's very important and to, to sort of recalibrate the way that the media handled this. And the, and the good news here is that, that that kind of change has been going on in the last mm-hmm. few years as it's become more understood. You know, we have a, a caller, Deborah, who we don't have time to get to, but I wanted to put her question to you as a, a, which is, you know, she says, you know, it seems like many of these shooters are often white. Is that sort of true, uh, you know, statistically, um, and what's your take on on that? Statistically, it's true as a majority, but there are um, quite a few shooters historically who have other ethnic and racial backgrounds. And again, this is not a predictive factor, right? It's not helpful in terms of the prevention work because you also have many, many, many white men who would never commit a mass shooting who may be having some of the other issues that are considered warning signs. And that has to be evaluated on a case-by-case basis. So fundamentally, it's not um, a racial problem. Although, you, yes, you, we can acknowledge that that a, a great deal of these shooters are, are white men. And there's that whole grievance situation that you're kind of talking right? There's so much grievance that's being sort of funneled through whiteness in this country right now. Yeah, I think that's where the rising factor of political extremism is is feeding into this problem in recent years. We've seen more cases where that's been a major factor. The Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, that mass shooting several years ago. Um, the attack in El Paso, Texas, driven very much by political ideology in, in the minds of white men who are committing these attacks. We've been talking with journalist Mark Fullman about his new book, Trigger Points, Inside the Mission to Stop Mass Shootings in America. Thanks so much for joining us, Mark. Oh, it was a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Alexis. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.